You're listening to Scarves Around the Funnel, brought to you in association with Forrest Hepburn and McDonald Signs. Getting noticed isn't always easy, because there's so much noise! But at Forrest Hepburn and McDonald, we make it easy. With standout signs, business cards, shop fronts, banners, leaflets, vehicle graphics, the lot. Showcasing your products, advertising your brand, and getting business noticed. So, what can we do for you? Forrest Hepburn and McDonald, creative sign and print solutions since the 1950s. Visit fhmcdsigns.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Scarves Around the Funnel, the podcast dedicated to Heart of Midlothian Football Club, a club going into the international break on a high, just as we like it. I am Laurie Dunsire, joined once again by Mark Donaldson. What a good win that was at Motherwell by three goals to nil. Was it a 3-0 win? Yes. Should it have been a 3-0 win? Doesn't matter. They didn't take their chances. We did. We were clinical. And on the back of so many people, quite rightly so, saying, oh, how are Hearts going to get on this season when they've got to play on a Sunday and they've been playing on a Thursday and have to travel back? That was a super result. So right now, yeah, I'm looking forward to this podcast. We're going to talk about Motherwell. We've got a special guest who I'm looking forward to speaking to coming up as well. So isn't it nice again when we're when we're positive and there's an element of positivity about our intros to our Around the Funnel podcast as opposed to, oh God, well, we were lost. To, okay, <laughs> it's so much better. The joviality factor is, because you know what? The, probably just around the corner, if we continue the negativity, which we don't want to do, of course there's going to be defeats to, to look back on. But this wasn't. This was a, a really good win and a really tough place to go. You'll, you'll well know that. I can't imagine you've commentated on too many Hearts wins at Fir Park. Unfortunately, not. No, but I, I was able to at the weekend, and we will talk yeah. about Hearts' uh, victory away to Motherwell. But our main focus on this mm. week's podcast is going to be Hearts' record appearance holder, Gary Mackay, who will be joining us shortly to discuss his career at Tynecastle and everything that that involved and what happened after as well. So we're really looking forward to Gary coming on and chatting to us as we get through all things maroon on Scarves Around the Funnel. Kingsley floats it forward looking for Forrest Lamy with a poor touch. Shanklin in the box, drives it towards goal, saved, second one in! And Lauren Shanklin gets goal number seven of the season, denied first of all by a good save by Liam Kelly, but he was on point, on hand to pounce and fire it in left-footed past the despairing goalkeeper the error from Lamy Shankland on hand Motherwell nil Hartman Lothian won as Hearts come down the right good flick towards Michael Smith cuts it back into the area Shankland back to goal back to Forrest left-foot shot yes! wonderful set-up play by Lauren Shankland and Alan Forrest just guides it into the bottom left corner for his third of the season and the jubilant jambles in the south stand celebrate Kingsley 
Feeds into the box, good on by Atkinson, into it. Atkinson back across, goal, Forrest touches it in! What a great goal! Three goals for Hearts, three points for Hearts, and it's Alan Forrest who wraps up the win here. It's come very much against the run of play. It's a good run by Atkinson, though. Cuts it back across, and Forrest with a simple finish in the end. Motherwell nil, Hearts three. Yes, you're listening to Scarves Around the Funnel, brought to you in association with Forrest Hepburn and McDonald Signs, who have been offering creative sign and print solutions since the 1950s. So first up, we're going to have a a brief chat about Motherwell against Hearts. A little bit more brief because we've got a lot to cram in when we speak to Gary Mackay when he comes on. Um, But Hearts went into this game at Fir Park uh, without a win in the league at the ground in over four years and the, the last win there was 2019 in the League Cup and off the back of a trip to Latvia on Thursday where of course they'd beaten RFS in Europa Conference League duty um, maybe less changes than what we thought for this game three changes in the end for Robbie Nielsen uh, Halkett, Grant and Janelli dropping out Lewis Nielsen uh, Kiermert Soglu and Alan Forrest all coming in so Keo, as he likes to be known in for his first appearance for Hearts and it was a similar setup in terms of the team uh, to the, the game that in Riga with Gordon and goals it was a kind of 4-1-4-1 with Michael Smith making his 175th appearance at right back Cochrane left back young Nielsen in the centre alongside Kingsley Devlin in a sitting midfield role with Forrest on the right and Barry Mackay on the left the man making his first appearance for Hearts, Kio Murtsoglu in the centre, alongside Andy Halliday, and up front, Lawrence Shankland leading the line and wearing number nine, of course. Um, so, quite a strong team for yeah. for Hearts, Mark. You know, I know we have players out still, but given who was available, and I feel like maybe it would have been a different team if it wasn't an international break coming up, but Mm-hmm. And given that, Robbie possibly knowing he's going to be able to rest a few players and work on some fitness for others, I think that maybe gave him the opportunity to play quite a strong eleven. We got our wish, didn't we? We spoke about it briefly at the end of the Make Some Noise part of the Around the Funnel podcast following the game in Latvia when we were discussing what should we do at Fur Park. And we didn't want as many changes as they made after they came back from Switzerland and then went to Celtic Park. So I think I think he got it right. I think I think they were... I, I was excited to see Kiyomar Soglu um, make his debut, and Forrest back into the starting lineup. So yeah, it was a, it was a lineup that... <laughs> I didn't check. I was working on, on, on Sunday. I've since watched the game. But because I was doing a Spanish commentary, I normally love, love to read the replies when the official Hearts Twitter account posts the <laughs> official lineup, I didn't get a chance to do so. Surely there can't be too many negative comments based on, well, of, course, of course there'll be some, but those people would be, they wake up unhappy regardless. Um, it, was a, it was a lineup that, um, yeah, it, it was fine. No problem whatsoever. And you look at the players um, who, who came on or, or didn't start, and the only one would kind of be Snodgrass. Would he feature? Yeah, he did. I still think his his conditioning um, is is a wee bit short of where he would hope it is going to be. Yeah. That's totally understandable because he was without a club until Hearts got him as a free agent. So uh, that I, I agree with you in that um, 
with the international break coming up, I think it's a great thing for Hearts. They've got too many players away, um, which on the whole, I mean, obviously there are some away with the national side. Obviously, Cammy Devlin and Natty Atkinson are away. Craig Gordon is away. I'm pleased that Stephen Kingsley's not away with Scotland. Uh, I'd love to see him get recognition, but I think it's important that we we have the opportunity to give them a few days off, as Robbie said he was going to do, and just have them back in and and get them all together. So I, I, all is good with the world right now from a maroon-tinted spectacles perspective. And it was a big opportunity for Hearts. They went into the game level on points with the Motherwell side, who were in decent form, only one defeat in their last five. But because of the way the results um, had gone the previous day, it meant that the winner of this game, be it Hearts or Motherwell, would go clear in third place, be one point ahead of Livingston, and they'd be just three points behind Rangers in second place, and only five points off the top because Celtic had just lost to St Mirren in the early kickoff. So a big incentive there. And this was a Motherwell side that have won their last four home games against Hearts. And to be honest, in terms of the game itself, both sides were quite untidy on the ball. There was a lot of errors. They were a bit slack, but it led to a very entertaining game. And I think mm. um, the Jalen films, uh, which are always released now via Hearts officially, are always great. And his um, his version for this, this game in particular summed it up brilliantly with a, a very jazzy upbeat tune in the background with the kind of 80s VHS style um, <laughs> around it as well and it just summed up it was very fun and of course it's easy to say a game was fun because your side wins 3-0 but it ended up being that because it was open uh, Lauren Shankland got things up and running I, I maybe gave him an extra goal in my commentary he, it was his 6th of the season not quite his 7th I'm just thinking ahead to the Rangers game when he gets his 7th um, and I think what's great about this Hearts team which we've maybe not had before is this isn't a game where we were at our best um, we rode our luck we'll get onto that in a moment but we've got players who can take chances and I think yes. in recent years we've maybe we've maybe felt we go the other way too much where we have lots of the lots of the playing games we kind of create some opportunities but we just don't take them and we get punished whereas we have a few players who seem to be able to grab goals when we're maybe not the best team we're maybe not on top that's what good players do. We had the conversation before about being able to be clinical and to score three goals from, I don't know, what was it, four shots on target? And look at the chances that Motherwell had. You're going to get away with some things. You're going to need your goalkeeper and your defence to be at the top of the game on, on the other hand. And you're also going to need a, a bit of good fortune on the hand that you haven't used because you've used the two so far. But I didn't know which metaphor to use there. Let's, <laughs> let's, cut, let's cut to the chase here. Hart Midlothian Football Club find themselves third again in the Premiership and second in their Europa League group. Having gone a, a, a run of games prior to Latvia where they'd lost six of seven, including European games, and I don't think we have been consistently anywhere near our best. So if We've still got a few gears to go up. Not saying we're going to get up to where we want to be. I hope we will. That involves a lot of things. And it's going to be hard this year playing kind of three times a week. But credit where credit's due. For us to be third in the table again, albeit just a point ahead of St Mirren and Livingston, but second in our Europa League group, without playing anywhere near our best, that, that says a lot. 
to everyone involved in getting there, doesn't it? It certainly does. I mean, we got a bit of luck at the start of the second half when Paul McGinn inexplicably misses an open goal from about two yards out and manages oh, to hit the know. post. Um, <laughs> Something abs- else, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. It was a game where we got a bit of luck because then four minutes after that, Alan Forrest uh, tucks away number two and um, a really lovely goal in terms of Alan Forrest. Wasn't it just? Back heel to Michael Smith, who then continues his run, cuts it back. Lon Shanklin holds it up, lays it off to Alan Forrest, who just guides into the bottom corner. And I've been really impressed with Alan Forrest. He obviously gets a third goal, which is a kind of tap-in. It's a lot about the Kingsley pass. But I've been very impressed with his impact in the team. And I think at the start of the season, we discussed, or at least I suggested, yeah, he's probably a good squad player to have in the team. You know, he's been one of the most important players in that starting eleven in a in, a, in an attacking sense. Anyway, here's something which I'm just thinking about now for the first time. I hadn't really thought about before, but Josh Janelli's performance in in Riga um, has Alan Forrest's start to his Hearts career made Josh Janelli kind of sit up and kind of think shit, he's a big threat to me. I need to be better. I need to be more consistent to get my chance. So I think it's a good thing. I think if you've got two players playing well in each position on the field, yeah. I, th- I think that's that's a good thing. And and I think he's been great so far. He's added goals. Very composed. You would have seen a lot more of Alan Forrest when he was at Livingston than I did. The only time I would have seen him is, is when he was playing against Hearts. Um, I've got enough things on my plate over here without making a mad dash to watch every Livingston football club game that they play. Uh, but he came, a lot of people were saying, yeah, that's a, that's a good signing. But we didn't know how much of a, an effect that he would have. He's had a brilliant effect since coming in. And the second goal was superb. The finish was outstanding. But the third goal as well, I mean, the through ball from Stephen Kingsley was yeah. frightening. And I think Matt Atkinson was the only one we had left who could play on the left-hand side, so he played it in there. He's made the run, which was a fantastic run. The cutback, Forrest, right place, right time. It's something good, something nice about scoring really good goals, don't you think? Oh, there is. It was, and it just made... And we, you know, we'll talk about how Hearts rode their luck between goals two and three. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, the understatement of the year. Wonderful wow. work. Here's, here's one thing that... Um, that always that always bugs me. And I think maybe Robbie spoke about this as well. We've definitely spoken about it with um, players or manager before. When, it's when expected goals come up. Um, oh, Jesus. Now, um, who posted it? I wish I, I wish I had it in front of me. But someone posted the expected goals from the um, Motherwell Hearts game. And it was around three for Motherwell and it was about one for Hearts or something yeah, like that. Um uh but e- either way, I mean I don't have the exact one in front of me because I'm not like I don't it was, discount... it was SPFL Media Watch. Expected goals. Motherwell 2.29 Hearts 1.01. So I responded expected pish. I mean <sighs> so the, what I, I I don't actually I don't mind expected goals with context, but this is, and this is what I'm sure it was Robbie we spoke about this, but now the problem with this is so, again, I've not got the full analysis in front of me, but expected goals. If, if you're talking about a game where a team is 2 0 up and they sit in a bit more, which Hearts did, they went 2 0 up and they sat back a little bit, Motherwell were chasing a goal. So they missed good chances and they missed another good chance, they missed another good chance. So the expected goal is totting up, totting up, while Hearts aren't forcing the issue because they're 2 0 up. If 
Motherwell had scored, Hearts would have then stepped back out and Motherwell wouldn't have been creating as many chances because Hearts wouldn't have been sitting on a lead. In the same way, if the game was nil-nil, it wouldn't have been as attack against defence minded like that. So suddenly, for me, if I don't know how much of the Motherwell expected goals happened in the spell where Hearts were leading, but I think most of it would have been, if not all there, of, of that expected goal level, it doesn't really give a reflection of the game. or it oh, doesn't, Because if a team doesn't need to score, they're not going to be trying to score. If a team is desperate to score, they will keep trying to score uh, uh, with a heightened aggression. And if they keep missing chances, they just look to make more chances. So it's, that's where my, that's what I think it's very misleading at times. The way the game went in terms of the goals is why it did go the way it did. And don't get me wrong, Hearts were very fortunate to win 3-0. It was not a fair reflection of the game. You don't need, you don't need statistics to know that. But at the same time, if Hearts hadn't got the second goal and Motherwell had equalised, the game would have been very different because Hearts would have been pushing for a goal still and Motherwell wouldn't have been pushing quite as much. Anyway, ran over. <laughs> no, no and, and I don't want to... I probably do come over as an old curmudgeon and a grumpy old fart with these kind of modern techniques or whatever. I have got no issue whatsoever in using analytics if it's going to help you. If you're going to use it and no one else does and you're getting a benefit from that, then take that. I just, maybe I don't know enough about it. And, and th that might be, it's easy to dismiss something if you're not prepared. And it can be lazy at times. If you're not prepared to find out something uh, about it, but you just want to dismiss it anyway, that, that's on me. That can be lazy. I just don't, I don't like it. I don't think, I, I think it's too prominent a part in, in football for what we do. We're commentators. I've never, I mean, when, it, when a graphic comes up, expected goals and thankfully it doesn't too much on what I do but I have seen it before I'm I'm not referring to that people can see on TV what they can see they can see the graphics that I can see I never understand why when you're watching TV or you're, you're seeing something and, and the person who's either commentating or announcing it or voicing it over reads to you what you can see a summation is fine but radio is totally different if you had access to expected goals and you were one of these commentators that had the tablet beside you or whatever and, and throughout the game you always had access to expected goals. Do you think that would enhance a broadcast if you were to drop it in from time to time? Just, just a thought, just a question for you. Would you be... Would, would that be something that, that you think would enhance your broadcast? You're younger than me. I don't think so. But then I, I, I mentioned general stats when they come up. and If they're pertinent, some, it's fine. And so, and but is expected goals pertinent? For me, no. I do think there's some benefit in them at times, but you need, you need a lot of context. And it, they can be very misleading. Um in certain situations, if one team is happy to defend and the other team is looking for a goal, the expected goals will just increase. And it's not Heavily because weighted in one favor, wouldn't it? It's it's not net. You know, if if one team goes one nil up early on and decides they're they don't want to search for another goal, and the other team keep missing chances, by the very nature of their poor finishing, their expected goals will go up because they keep attacking. They have to keep attacking. But if they score the first one, if their finishing is better, their expected goal will actually probably be lower because then they don't need to attack as much. If that makes sense, so I'm just confused. I, I, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. We've been there before, but ultimately, 
<laughs> it was a big win for Hearts. And we, you know, we had Craig Gordon to thank for thank um with a couple of good saves. Uh Motherwell were very unlucky as well as being um, you know, as well as having some poor finishing. So it was one of those games where things went for you. But they say, you know, after saying all that, I'm expected goals. I'm just gonna roll out a massive cliche. It's the sign of a good team. You don't play at your best, you ride your luck a bit. But you end up winning three 0 and it's the kind of game that yeah. sometimes you feel like we we have against Rangers or Celtic when we play our best, and somehow we come away with a hammering on the in terms of the scoreline. So I think it was I think good. Find, I, finding a way is the sign of a good team. Finding a way when you're not at your best to still get three points. Rangers and Celtic do that quite a lot. There's no way you can win as many games as they do and not be at your best every single game. That ain't going to happen. So it's yeah. when you're not at your best. What do you do? Now, if you'd offered me right now, third in the table, seven games played, 13 points before the start of the season. I'm not saying you would or you wouldn't take it. That's totally subjective. Would you have thought that Hearts would be in third place with 13 points from seven games? And would you have thought that a 2-0 win over Hearts in our next game would take us up to second? I absolutely would not. No, absolutely not. I think it's it's a great position to be in. I mean, we've got don't get we've got a really tough schedule coming up, especially in October, in terms of the amount of games and the fixtures that we've got. But with the injuries we've had, with the schedule that we've had, to be sitting third in the table and second in our Europa Conference group, um, I think it's fantastic, and it gives us a chance to regroup with a break. I know Robbie said. Momentum's good, you know. We would have kind of wanted to keep going in many ways. I think the break comes at a good time. You know, Super we tough. go into it on a high, everyone will be buzzing for the Rangers game and we'll hopefully be able to get a few players back fit and ready. And a few players have been carrying niggles, we'll be able to shake them off. And I think it's a good time for us. So yeah, I think, very, very happy. I think there's three tables in the one premiership table. I think Celtic prior to their game against St Mirren, would have said, would romp the league. I still think they will, because I'm not convinced by Rangers. A couple of pals were at Ibrox on Saturday and were not impressed. They reckon that a lot of the players have chucked it and aren't playing for Geo, which is, is interesting. But I think Celtic and Rangers will be competing for the title. Celtic will probably win it. Then there'll be a gap. So it's how many teams will then be in this next mini-table and I think I think the league table right now is pretty it's pretty I know we've only played seven times, so there's four teams that we haven't played yet um before we've played everybody. But I think that league table right now, whether it's the same six teams in the middle section of the league, I don't know. But I think your Dundee United's, your Achilles, your St. Johnston's. I'm slightly surprised at Ross County, because I thought when they played at Tynecastle, they were decent. Um they, they all it takes is a couple of wins. But how many times have we seen it with this table the way it is in these teams? There's no guarantee. Eighth can beat fourth, right? Because there's only two points between them. So teams around us are taking points of each other. So it's important that, that we don't. I think you'll get that. I think you'll get three sections of this table. Celtic and Rangers, Hearts plus five others. Wouldn't surprise me if it is the five. St. Mirren, Livy, Hibbs, Aberdeen and Motherwell, and then St. Johnston, Kelly, Dundee United and probably Ross County. I think that's that's what you're looking at going forward. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was similar to that in 20 games' time. Hopefully it is and we're still third. Hopefully. But certainly for the time being, that's where we are. 
that's where we'll be going into the Rangers game and you never know. Things go our way and we could be even higher in the table. Fingers crossed. So, one of the three of us, Laurie, has played 737 times for Hearts. In fact, the three of us combined have played 737 (laughs) times for Hearts. I can't recall, apart from in my dreams, scoring the winner at the Gorgie Road end. Uh, Have you? Is it in your dream or can you remember pulling on the famous maroon and white? Uh, Yeah, so far away from reality with me that it's hard to even dream it. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who fulfilled and lived through a dream as a youngster and went on to play 737 times for Heart of Midlothian, represented his country, was one of the first members of the Heart of Midlothian Hall of Fame in 2006. Delighted to welcome a man whose living room I sat in for a good couple of years to write the book Maroon Heart. And now we get to speak to him on Around the Funnel podcast. Hopefully that's a good enough introduction for the wonderful Gary Mackay. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And that was a very nice introduction. Yes, thank you very much. First of all, newly married, just back from honeymoon. How was it? It was wonderful, yeah. The, the wedding was great. Lovely sunny day. Uh, went away on honeymoon and returned to Hearts getting two victories in the bounce. So things are going well just now, yeah. I was going to say, it was, it's a good time for you right now in your life, isn't it? Because you've got your, your new wife and, and your team are your team have bounced back um, with, a, with a couple of wins ahead of the, the international break. How pleasing is it for you to see Hearts in the position they are right now, Gary? I think it's wonderful that we'll have bounced back with two victories because I think within... If you're looking from the outside, looking in, is at management and at the way people run their football club, when you've had the kind of results we had prior to these two games, you start wondering, is there something wrong? Is there a wee bit, you know, a wee bit unrest within the changing room? But what Robbie seems to always do is recover from a poor period. And he's done that with two great results. They went away from home in Europe as, as well as we did, and then to go to Motherwell and, and, and win convincingly without conceding. It shows that the 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 ethics and the, the 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 work ethic that they have within the changing room is kind of consistent, and mm-hmm. it will always be consistent, and will always turn results around. And I think that shows a, a real good management group. Yeah, I know Laurie will, will want to speak more in depth about what your thoughts are on Hearts at the the present time. But before we get to this Hearts, what about that Hearts? Because I think the only way that we could, when we had to come up with chapter titles for your book, the first chapter title that you basically suggested to me, and I had no problem whatsoever, Jambo Till I Die. So you can change your job, your wife, your car, your religion, but never your football team. That's the first quote in the book before you go on to talk about being paid a basic salary of £39,000 for season 96-97, your last at Hearts, the highest you were ever paid. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Could it have been anybody else, or was it always going to be Hearts? I think circumstances dictated it was Hearts because I'd went to Man United, enjoyed my time down there, I was offered the opportunity to go and sign for them as a 16-year-old, but my mum took poorly, and when it came to wanting to stay in Scotland, 
yes, it would always only have been Hearts. I'd trained the Easter Road, it's well documented. Uh, David Bowman and myself had been down the Easter Road, understand Vincent uh, and one or two other coaches. But that was because at that time, Hearts didn't have a, a youth policy. They had, they had virtually nothing. And until uh, Archie Martin and, and, and Bruce Brown on the coaching side got involved, and uh, there was nothing at Hearts to actually attract you to sign for them. But uh, Archie Martin turned that around as the chairman of the football club. It's different now, isn't it? Because the youngsters coming through at the top clubs want for nothing, don't have to do anything. It was a little bit different at Tynecastle back in the early 80s for you. What were some of the things you did on the ground staff? Well, we were hard-driven by initially Andy Stevenson, and then uh, when when we finished our apprenticeship, uh, Alan Ray came in, and he was the one that was in charge. He was the physio then. Uh, what did we do? We, we cleaned the terrace in, uh, we packed the hampers, uh, we run and got uh, Alfie Con a cigarette at half-time if he needed a cigarette to, to smoke on, uh, to... Uh, get yourself going for the second half again. Uh, so there was lots of things that were done that uh, young youngsters now aren't asked to do. Uh, and I I, could, I worry myself a wee bit because I think in any walk of life, serving an apprenticeship is something that's massively important to us all. It's the only way we learn about the, the job that we do. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about. I've heard a few current pros, sorry, former pros, talking about current young pros and saying that you can have all the talent in the world, but a lot of the people who are now saying, yeah, but these guys nowadays aren't doing the stuff that we had to do. How can you appreciate what football and everything that goes around football is if, and and look, there are many teams, many players, many clubs, Gary, that this kind of still happens to a degree and everyone has to muck in. But I'm talking about at the kind of high level. How do these young players kind of get to know what real football is all about if they haven't had any of this? Or do they not need to worry because they think their talent can get them through? Well, well I think we're fortunate because, I, I mean, I know that knowing Robbie, because Robbie said, served an apprenticeship, uh, I'm sure Lee McCulloch probably did the same at, at Motherwell and, and Gordon Forrest, I'm ignorant a wee bit about where Gordon started his career, but these guys will know that the, the youngsters have to have a work ethic about them, both on and off the pitch, uh, and that's helping. Uh, you know, if the if the older guys want something uh, and they need something, be it boots on a match day, making sure they're cleaned or their studs changed and so on. Uh, I, I think that's something that, that within hearts that they they will understand and the, the management understand. Uh, I, I look at. Uh, a lot of the coaches at Hearts who've had careers in the game, Stephen Naismith, another one who would have served an apprenticeship at Kilmarnock and then went on to, to great things down at uh, Everton. Uh, and I, I, I don't missing out on an apprenticeship for youngsters is not something that I would be looking at. But uh, everybody has different views on it. Uh, you know, do they just should they train more? Should they be training in the morning and the afternoon, and somebody else doing the washing? I mean, Hearts have a great kit man. I mean, we talk about unsung heroes in football club. I mean, Gordon, uh, the kit man at Hearts, is just one of the uh, best guys you'll ever come across. And and maybe he just wants to do all he sell because he has such a desire to work for our famous football club. Talking of apprenticeships. Uh... Gary, you know, when you, you signed for Hearts in 1980, uh, Bobby Munker was the, the boss back then. Your your first game, albeit 
a non-competitive in the terms of the word, uh, 20th of August 1980, you were just 16 years of age in East of Scotland Shield final mm-hmm. against Hibs. Do you, do you remember much about that game? No, but I was really disappointed that uh, tonight that we, we weren't actually viewing it. It was just talking because I had to take my FTH t-shirt off tonight when I was sitting with that here tonight, but I've now changed and just sitting in my jammies. Uh, you well, can send us a picture and we'll put it on social media if you <laughs> want. I'll, I'll get that looked out for you. But uh, no, the, ah, the, the East of Scotland Shield, I, I, if I remember correctly, and I don't know what he'd done in the game, but Archie White was involved, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Bobby Monker had signed Archie White, because I think that was the first time someone mentioned to me about White and Mackay. Uh, I don't know if it he was. was. He played, yeah. Game. Archie White. No, did he? No, uh, can I remember the game? Did we equalise late on in the game? or was something? Unfortunately, Hearts were leading 2-0 and Hibs scored two goals in the last 10 minutes to take it to penalties and they won on penalties. And Laurie, that was something that, I, I mean, people, you know, they, they, they wonder why my dislike. That was something that happened a lot. I mean, I can remember Pat Stanton scoring for Hibs at the, the school end very late on in a game at Tide Castle. It felt like the 93rd, 94th, 95th minute. And Hibs always seemed to have that kind of luck mm-hmm. at that point in time. Fortunately for myself, during my playing career, uh, the worm slightly turned. Yeah, the luck changed. Um, you made your first start a day after your 17th birthday, Scottish mm-hmm. Cup third round game against Morton, um, a nil-nil draw. Uh, interestingly, it probably sums up maybe that period that seven of the starting 11 at that point were 20 or under. It was a very tough season for you. I know Hearts finished bottom. They were relegated for a third time in five years. You you managed to make 15 appearances, though you weren't even 18 by the end of the campaign. Was that quite a, a tough learning curve for you? Massive. But Bobby Monker had came in and, and he, he, he knew that the restraints within the football club were such that it, it was about making sure that we were given a, an opportunity to experience what being a professional football player was about. And he stuck to that. He stuck to his principles. It didn't work out for him. Uh, I, I can remember, I mean, the, the game against Morton, when I look back, and guys of my vintage, and, and, and a wee bit older, I'll, I'll remember, that, I mean, Andy Ritchie and Jim Houghton, I mean, Andy Ritchie was a top, top player for Morton at that time. Roy Baines was the goalkeeper. Uh, and we went, we, we drew on the Saturday, and then we were defeated in the replay in the, the midweek. But, but Bobby Monker knew his remit, and that was to try and blood as many of the up-and-coming up young players, because... Hearts were a, an aging team at that point or an aging club and there needed to be change and unfortunately Bobby wasn't able to follow that through because as you say he was relieved of his duties The start of, of your career at Tynecastle and having players like Robbo, like Davy Bowman like other guys you've probably crossed paths with previously add into that the experience of Hearts at the time Dad's Army, it was called. It kind of just seemed like it worked. There was the youngsters, the old guys, and and those in the middle. And the final product maybe took a few years to gel, but it just seemed to work, Gary. Why do you think that was? Well, I think, first of all, you, you're right. And the recruitment under Alan McDonald and Sandy Jardin uh, can't be underestimated because their knowledge of being top professionals 
uh, was immense. I mean, what they achieved with, with Rangers can never be underestimated. Winning a European trophy and such like Sandy Jardin playing in World Cups. So when you've got that kind of experience uh, and knowledge, then uh, yes, they made one or two mistakes in the recruitment. But the guys that they brought in, I mean, Jimmy Bowen, Wally Johnson, people were saying these were aging professionals who uh, wouldn't provide much for the team. But it wasn't just their influence on the pitch that Sandy Jardin and Alec McDonald looked at. It was the it was the knowledge that they brought to the changing room, the knowledge they brought to dealing with match situations, the knowledge they brought to how to train and when to rest and, 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 and when to enjoy yourself. And, and these guys, it, cannot, it can never be underestimated about senior professionals. I look right now at our football club and the one person that I think to myself, if I would have, if I could have played with one player in the Hearts team right now, Michael Smith would be that guy because he is just, or not just, he is a top professional. You can see that the way he is in a match. Everything is just focused on being the best he can be for 90 minutes. And we had guys that uh, had that in abundance during the early to mid-80s. What do you remember about your first Edinburgh Derby because you went on to have an incredible record of only losing seven of the games that you played, more than 50 matches against Hibernian. And there's a nice little quote that you gave me um, from chapter one. <laughs> you said, with bonuses of up to a grand per man for beating Hibernian, I don't think it was that at the start, I have to thank the likes of Paul Kane, Mickey Weir and Gordon Hunter for paying for many of my summer holidays over the years. Do you remember Do you remember your first time, Gary? Yes, that was the Jimmy Bowen Robo Derby. Uh, I was on the pitch in it. Did I participate? No. Uh, I, was, I was probably just overcome with the emotion of the whole occasion. Uh, and I witnessed our comeback and Robbo and Jimmy's contribution from the substitutes bench because I was taken off about half an hour to go physically and mentally exhausted because I thought it was me against the, uh, me against the Hibs and it wasn't that and, and, and Sandy Jardin correct me, corrected me in the fullness of time and sorted me out but no, the first derby was wonderful because it was part of it uh, and that was when the things did turn but I couldn't see I contributed anything positive to the game, uh, apart from being substituted and then team going on and winning when I was off the pitch. Mm, I know Laurie wants to speak more about Edinburgh Derby's. <coughs> excuse me, I've got a cough. Um, Edinburgh Derby's over the years that, that you played in, but that was one of the biggest games on the calendar. You'd already experienced big games, and if anybody watched the recent BBC documentary when Pat Nevin was looking for this footage of when Scotland became European champions under age level. You had experienced that. You scored in the final. Did that help you kind of settle in and kickstart your career a little bit quicker because you'd played at a, a higher level for your country and you were able to kind of deal with those kind of situations? Well, we were very fortunate because we had had, you know, not just myself, Bo, Robbo, Ian Westwater, uh, these guys, we had had a, a really good uh, grooming within the, the, the boys club environment. I mean, Eric Shadler and George Stewart, who were ex-Hibs players, uh, had been part of our, the coaching group at Salvison Boys Club. 
we all had went to various English clubs and seen how they run. So we, we weren't uh, backward in coming forward in the sense that we knew that we had decent ability. And then when we went away with Scotland, Bo and Westy and I, uh, and with the belief that was shown in us again by Walter Smith and uh, Andy Roxborough, and to go and win a European Championship was was amazing. I mean, we we, we drew with the Dutch to qualify. Uh, Marco van Basten, who went on to have a wonderful career, played for the Dutch in that game, uh, and it was just a a fabulous start to uh, all our careers uh, to go and achieve something like that. With guys that went on, I think when I look back at it, was it Pat, David Bowman, Jim McAnally, myself, Paul McStay, you know, there was five or six or maybe even seven of these guys went on to uh, gain full international honours. So after the, the relegation we mentioned earlier, there was two seasons in the first division where you uh, kind of established yourself as a regular um, before Hearts were promoted back to the Premier in 1982-83. Alex McDonald, as you mentioned, was uh, player manager after December 81, taking over from Tony Ford, who had a very short spell after Bobby Moncur had left. Um, First two seasons back in the top flight, finished fifth, finished seventh. Um, Was there any feeling or suggestion of what was to come? Did you feel that something... Um, big was coming from Hearts that you were building towards something which obviously would happen in 85-86? I think to be honest Laurie I think it, it looked like the Alec McDonald actually dismantled the place in a sense because I think what a kid going in 85-86 or maybe even 84-85 was the only senior pro left in the three years that Alec McDonald was there he just he just cleaned the place out totally because he felt that the level of professionalism, and in hindsight, when I look back, the level of professionalism was nothing like good enough to take heart and move forward. Uh, and that's why uh, he, he did what he did. And, and as I said, what he was the only one that survived. We knew the young, we knew that we were all developing physically and mentally within our uh, going forward. And he went across, and then he went to. To Ireland, and he brought Pat Byrne across from Ireland. Uh, and as I said, we had really good experienced pros. I mean, Roddy McDonald came in, uh, Brian Whitaker came in, Kenny Black came in, who became a, a, a midfield uh, ball winner on uh, our side and, a, and a, a massive friend of mine. And he just had a knowledge about how to put a team together, Alan McDonald. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that's the way it shaped up going forward. Yeah, I mean, you were only. 21 still at that point but you'd made almost 150 first team appearances uh, but you also had you know Craig Levine was 20 at the start of the season Robo was 20 John Cahoon was 22 so there was a lot of young talent coming through you know do you remember a point in that campaign where you started to feel we 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 could be challenging for the title this season I, I, I don't it was not it was something that was never discussed it was just enjoy the ride while you were on it because it wasn't expected of us because it wasn't just the old firm you were up against at that time. It was what was termed the new firm because both Aberdeen and Dundee United had wonderful sides at that point. So it was a case of just enjoying it and, and the, the old adage and the old cliche was let's take it a game at a time, both in the league and in the, the Scottish Cup. So, you know, we, we'd never... We never really spoke about 
what we were hoping to achieve. We just wanted to go game from game. I think we drew against Clyde Bank at uh, their stadium, uh, and then we went on a run after that. I think we equalised late on at Clyde Bank, and then the run began, and it, it just the, the momentum just built from there. Nice touch of confidence, that kind of confidence they could do with in front of goal now. Mackay. Will he himself? He has! one nil. 24 minutes gone. Oh, and the very goal will not only put Hearts in front, of course, but give them enormous confidence and done in great style. The young midfield player taking his time, measured pace forward, and a superb strike. You mentioned Clyde Bank, I mean, and, you know, taking it one game at a time. Um, 26th of April, 1986, uh, you scored the only goal of the game against Clyde Bank at Tynecastle, a 1-0 win. Now, Taking it one game at a time, at that point, you were one game away from the title. What was the feeling that day in amongst the dressing room, the players, Tyne Castle as a place? There was a, a feeling of euphoria initially, but I think when we stepped back from it, we won. There was, a, there was also a nagging doubt that we had had two or three other chances in the game and we hadn't capitalised, which meant that thing within the goal difference, goal average uh, scenario meant that Celtic, if I remember rightly, had a midweek game coming up against Motherwell, a game that they had in hand. So we knew that we could have done more in the day, but everything was still in our, our own boots or our own hands, however you would like to put it. Uh, and that's all you can ask for as a, as a football player. I have to say, and talk about Dens Park, does it still hurt as much now as it did then? Nah, it will never, never leave us. Never. I mean, I, I think, and and I'm not saying that I take it more of myself because of my connection to the football club. But I think because I I'd been because I had witnessed the seventies and, and as a as a supporter, I, I maybe did. And, and and I think you know that I had a hangover personally, uh, not a drink hangover, a, a personal hangover going into the following season because of just how hard it hit us and we maybe didn't realise psychologically just how much of an impact it had and it is that, it's still difficult to talk about but I always go back to the fact that when you think about when, we, when I signed in 1980 to think within six years this yo-yo club which we were part of uh, had stabilised ourselves and bought a pretty pride back into the football club uh, and that allowed the club to uh, have a, a more solid footing going forward. That's got to be part of the healing process, Gary. Like like anything, we we've all all of us totally different things in our own life. But at times we we've had to we've had horrible things that we've experienced. Um, we've had loss. We've we've had all sorts of things. So some of us will do different things from others. You there looked for positives from a negative. Did that help you? cope and was that a big help as part of the healing process it was a massive help but I, I think again and I don't think anybody can underestimate 
how important during that whole period Alec McDonald and Sandy Jardin were because of the experience mm. they had. Yeah. You, you know, I can't, you know, your experience and, and Laurie's experience within the media side of things, you know, you're learning all the time. And we were always learning. And we were always we were like sponges because uh, of the knowledge that Sandy and Alec gave to us. So we, we were very lucky that we had people of that quality uh, and that standing within the game in charge of our team to allow us individually and collectively to bounce back the best as we could going forward and, and deal with European situations going forward, deal with some of us going in international duty uh, and they kept us absolutely and totally grounded and even though the disappointment for them must have been could have been magnified because mm. These two guys, and I, I spoke to you about this, Mark, these two guys could have been the managers of Rangers Football Club. And for them, Laurie, that would have been the equivalent to me playing for Hart and Memorial, having achieved all they had done. If they had won the Premier League with Hearts, Rangers would have come and try to bite that Hearts hand off to take them there, and, and they never got that opportunity, just in a way, because we fell at the final hurdle. There was a phone call, Gary, the following year to Heart of Midlothian Football Club from Dundee United and an mm -hmm. offer of half a million pounds mm -hmm. was placed for, for Gary Mackay. If he'd won the league at Dens, you wouldn't have been playing Dukla Prague, you would have been playing in the European Cup. Who knows what would have happened? Dundee United in 1987 had that wonderful run, beating Barcelona home and away, getting to the UEFA Cup final against Gothenburg. And half a million is a lot of money. Would your decision to stay have been different if you had won the league at Dens in 1986? Or were you hearts through and through because you subsequently got a new four-year deal? I was never... I never thought about playing for anybody else within Scottish football. I know that I went to Airdrie at the tail end of my career, but that was uh, just because my legs had gone. But no, I, I, I always felt if I was playing in... In Scotland, it would always be with Hart and Midlothian. It wouldn't have been with anybody else. That that was for me. That was the pinnacle in Scotland. You know, other people can think differently because of uh, with other clubs who have greater resources and maybe greater fan bases. But playing for Hearts was what I wanted to do in Scotland, and that's what uh, I went on to do. And not and United. It was it was lovely that somebody of the quality of Jim McLean was looking for my services. But there was never an instance that I gave it a thought. It was one. It was taking the opportunity to sign a four-year contract, as you say, with Hearts. Forest Hepburn and McDonald have been making creative sign and print solutions since the 1950s. For more, visit fhmcdsigns.co.uk. Talking of Europe that, that Mark mentioned there, you, you, you had a couple of uh, experiences of Hearts playing in Europe, Paris Saint-Germain very early on, mm -hmm. um, Ducal Prague, which Mark mentioned as well. 88, 89 though, took a, a whole other level in terms of Hearts being in Europe, the, the run to the quarterfinal that we've spoken about with other players who were involved at, at that time as well. Um, you were involved in every game of that run. What, what do you remember of that? And again, similar to when you're 
looking back at the the league run and when that became almost a real challenge um was it just take every round as it comes and just see what what happens i i'm not it's not try be little or be bored about it it was i mean to an extent it was i suppose because when you then draw a club of the the standing of Bayern Munich, then you also realise that your football club uh, and the club that you love and the club that so many people support are going to be taking part in a quarter final of a European competition against one of Europe's giants. And again, you think back, and for me to think back to 1980 or to think back to 76 when uh, Hearts played against. Uh, Locomotive Leipzig and then Hamburg, and mm-hmm. as a supporter, how how wonderful that was for me to what to be at the Locomotive Leipzig game, uh, and then Hamburg uh, were just a, a step too far for us. And then look, and even looking back at Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich won a step too far for us. We were just on the night over the two legs, just a wee bit unfortunate because we had as much quality as they did at that point in time, within 180 minutes. And the ball just never rolled for us. You know, John Cahoon's effort that came off the post and so on, uh, or just trailed by the, the left-hand post. And, uh, but you then realise that, that what Harvey Mavodian was capable of. And that mm. was because, as I've said to you already, along with Wallace and Paul Smith and Les Porches, uh, Alec McDonald and Sandy Jardin had dragged the club up by the bootlaces. Obviously, Hearts have a massive European game coming up at Tynecastle against Fiorentina. Um, many will see it as a bit of a mismatch, like many would have seen Hearts and, and Bayern Munich back in 88. Uh, what what did Alex McDonald say or do that put Hearts in a position that they can actually beat Bayern Munich and obviously and very nearly win over two legs, very unlucky over in Germany in the second leg. And how can how can Robbie Nielsen replicate that in a few weeks' time? Well, it's really it's funny, Laurie, because the game has changed, and I and I've not been in change, a changing room for a, a long time, so it has changed. But the one thing Alec Mendonca and Sandy Jardin never ever done was focus on the opposition. They always focused on the strengths of the team that they were selected, always. And that was a without fear. It didn't matter if it was Scottish Cup games where we were beat by uh, lower league teams who uh, we should have beat, or Bayern Munich. We were told to go out to play to our strengths and look to cause the opposition problems. And we were very, and I, I, I'm saying very really, I don't think we ever had an in-depth chat about the opposition. It was about what we could bring to that 90 minutes. Well, it's funny because we've had Robbie Nielsen on the on the podcast a few times and he spoke about George Burley. Um, and he said in 2005-2006, one of his tactics, which he said was partly because he had a dressing room full of players from out with Scotland who didn't actually know the opposition. And he just listed the, the opposition team up on the up on the white whiteboard and just put and just said he's shite he's shite he's rubbish he's awful he's terrible and he said his approach was basically just to make every player there feel really confident and go that the opposition are terrible you're much better than them so focus on that um and obviously yeah there's 
there's there's far more opposition analysis these days and there's a little bit of looking at um, potential threats from the other side. But Robbie Nielsen said that was what George Burley did, just kept it really simple and just made everyone feel as big as he could and said that they're better than other team, so just focus on doing your own thing. And, and that's what I've seen with George, and that's not exactly from what Robbie's saying. That's what I've seen with George, because I was doing the... I was doing the uh, co-commentary at that time with Remark, and we've seen mm-hmm. these games, and, and we went out and played Della Strengths, and, you're, and, and, and it's great if you're in a position to do that. You'll not always be in a position to do that, but if that's the way a manager wants to be, then that will transmit itself to the players, that there's no fear. And, and we didn't. We had no fear playing against anybody. Uh, and... Uh, as players, to be given that confidence, I think that allows you to go out and play to a level, uh, maybe even a, above that you're capable of, because you're given that freedom to go out and have a go, and, and then we did that. And, and things, you know, all managers are different. I mean, if I look, I mean, if, if when you think of Alan McDonald and Sandy Jordan, who that's the way they did, they went about things. Joe Jordan was the other way. Joe was very much in because he came from the Italian background and in Italy it was all about systems and the way they trained and the shape of the team. Alan McDonald, we played 4-3-3. didn't matter who we played against, we played 4-3-3 and it was up to other teams to try and contend with us. We had some fun, didn't we, commentating together on Hearts, Gary, but that start to the season in 05-06. Not sure anything will ever top that. No, and then, and then you you think of the, the downer when we, we, I sat in the Gorgie suite and, and heard that George had been relieved of his duties, you know, but it, mm. it, it, this is, I mean, this is what our football club is like. It's just, you, 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 we are never certain, and I don't think you can have ever any certainty about having a good football club because it's been a roller coaster. I mean, I, 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 I look back and think, you know, George's t- team, and then I, I think of the day that... Uh, a lot of our supporters were leaving the stadium when uh, we were 4-2 down against uh, uh, Edinburgh rivals and, mm-hmm. and young Graham Weir uh, <laughs> just made a name for himself. You know, these these days never leave you uh, as a supporter or a, or a player. Remind me, were you representing Graham at the time? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, he was, and Graham was a, a down-to-earth lad, you know, and uh, stayed through in Hart Hill and uh, and he had a desire there because he had a when we're talking when we look at and we make that parallel with apprenticeships, Graham had a desire because where he stayed his dad was a real hard working uh, individual and that's what Graham and his younger brother whose name slips me uh, had all about them was that they had a desire to be the best they can be. Didn't get there eventually due to circumstances but uh, he had a work ethic, Graham, and that work ethic showed up that day. Wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a minute left, and then he did it again. And there was just, it was incredible that day. I want to I take you back um, to your, your Scotland caps, your four Scotland caps. Now, Ray Houghton will never have to buy a drink in Dublin or anywhere else in Ireland again. And hasn't had to since the 12th of June 1988 when he scored the winning goal against England and Stuttgart at the Euros in 1988. What on earth has that got to do with Gary Mackay? Well, if you hadn't done what you did in Bulgaria, in Sofia, 
1987 and scored the only goal in a, a 1-0 win against a side who were trying to get to the Euros and you were playing for a team in Scotland who were already eliminated. And I believe, if I remember correctly, you had a visitor as you got back to Glasgow Airport after the game who played mm. for Celtic. Yeah, but it was, hi, that, was, that was a lovely night. And, and, and I always look back on it as being a, a lovely night because it, it showed the turnaround at Harriman again because from 1974 to 1997, uh, 1987 rather, that 13-year period, there hadn't been anybody represented Scotland since Donald Ford. And I was very lucky to be that Hearts player that kind of broke that barrier again and allowed... Other players, Craig and Big Davy and John Cahoon, John Robertson, Henry Smith, then to go on and represent our country as well. Uh, but yes, Pat Bonner came to the airport after the game and uh, I was given a presentation on behalf of uh, the Irish FA of some, uh, mention it, Jameson's whiskey. And that was lovely. <laughs> Pat Bonner, having been as nice as he was then, took it away from uh, during my testimonial year, because I asked him at Tyne Castle if it would be possible for him to get me a strip signed to auction at the testimonial dinner. And his response was, oh, i got a lot of people asking for these things, Gary. I said, I'm not able to do that. Ooh, wow, and, I didn't know that. Oh, hit you, hit you, well, you know, you, you, seven, six, seven years earlier, you know, when things have went well for the Republic, and then and I thought, oh, there's nothing like pulling the rug from under your feet when you've asked for a, uh, mm. and a strange strip, you know. But uh, we're, all, we're all different, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel you deserved more than four caps for Scotland, Gary? No, I think in the time that I played, I was fortunate enough to gain four caps. Uh, I, I don't think anybody, myself included, maybe appreciated just how good a player Paul McStay was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was maybe a player that uh, done. He was so good that people just expected it from him. And Paul was uh, in the centre of the, that midfield at the time. And Graham Souness was getting a bit older. And then you had the likes of Jim Bett, who was uh, who was a, a magnificent player, you know. And, and, and so there was so many good midfield players in Scotland. I mean Neil Simpson. And Neil Cooper, I mean, Murdo McPyre, we've all that. So I was delighted to get four caps. I wish I, my career had went on from there. I wouldn't want me to gain more caps, but I think that was probably a bit right. But to score the winning goal for your country is something that uh, will live with me forever. That answers a question from Mark Wells, who'd, who'd asked if if you and Robbo were hard done by with, with Scotland caps. But I guess. Well, from... I think Robbo was, Laurie. Yeah. I think Robbo was. I I don't think. I, I mean, I, being a from me being a creative midfield player, then to being a wing back under Joe, and then being a holding midfield under a midfield player under Jimmy Billy. We Robbo played as a central striker all the time, and we Robbo never got. And, and I know people say, ah, but that's not. No, it's no nonsense. We Robbo never got the amount of chances in a game that Ali McCoy's used to get, or Frank McIverney got, or, or mm-hmm. that, you know, and and still had a wonderful strike record. Uh, I think I I I can feel hard done by for Robbo not getting, <laughs> for him not getting more yeah. chances than he definitely. Um, taking it back to Joe Jordan, so um, you know, he got Hearts finishing 
second of the table, 91-92, a position that they would manage again until 2006, the season that started with George Burley. And that's you know, there's only been that one time since 1992 that he'd done it, um, the Hearts have done it. Uh, Steve Weddle said, was Joe Jordan ahead of his time as a coach? Um, what was it like playing wing-back under him? And if Falkirk hadn't won 6-0, how much longer would he have gotten the job? Okay, uh, let's take the first thing. The, so yeah, three the, questions. First one, what was he like uh, as a coach? <laughs> in hindsight, he was a wonderful coach, and he was a but he was very different, and it was like chalk and cheese the way he worked in relation to the way Alec and Sandy worked. What he did do, he brought unfortunately Frank Connor who uh, passed away recently. He brought Frank in as his assistant, and Frank was the glue within the changing room. He kept the spirit of the players up because Joe was was a bit aloof. But when you look back and you think, why was he aloof? Well. If you look at what he had achieved in his career, maybe that allowed him to be like that. Uh, but as a coach, uh, we maybe didn't, as players, buy in to things as much as we should have, even though we achieved what we did. Uh, playing wing-back, playing wing-back against St Johnston, or playing wing-back against Motherwell, or playing wing-back against Kilmarnock, or even against Hibs, was great. Going to Ibrox and playing against David Robertson and Peter Hooster was not so enjoyable. Because <laughs> they were athletes. Uh, and I was an up-and-coming athlete, I thought. But it, it, and that, that was very difficult. But for me, you, you play where you, know, you play where you're asked to play. And he, he played me there. He played me in Europe uh, behind the front. Uh, behind the striker, he played me against the Hibs when uh, after, uh, Gordon Hunter kindly fractured my, my cheek bone and, and my jaw uh, behind the, the striker there. And, and I had lots and lots of respect for Joe. Uh, did some of my colleagues have the same amount of respect for Joe? No. And that's why the 6 nothing defeat uh, Falkirk occurred. Uh, Ooh, that's a big statement, Gary. I will, I can, I'll never be I'll never be anything but honest about how I'm go there, Mark. You know that. Mm-hmm. I I was I was struggling with the flu on the Thursday, didn't go to training. And on Friday Frank Connor called me. And it's not making an excuse for me, but it's just telling you what happened. And Frank called me on the Friday. He says, Gary, how are you? I said, I'm struggling, Frank. He says, Will you come in tomorrow? And I'd never heard of this. He says, Will you get a B twelve? Which is a I don't know, do you know what it is, Laurie? Yes. Yes, yeah, like a vitamin oh. shot, isn't it? So I got a B12 in my right buttock and played on the Saturday, or went to the game on the Saturday and said, I said, well, if you want me to play, I'll play. And I did. Uh, in hindsight, should I have played? Yeah, because you want to help your group. Do I feel that there were players in the team that didn't give as much as I did on that day? Aye, I do. I think one or two people let themselves down and let the club down that day and, and, and that, that's why Joe Jordan lost his job. Absolutely no doubt. Hmm. Joe, Jordan, Joe Jordan would be too classy to even talk like that. I'm just telling you from a heart's perspective that's how it was. As someone who's open and uh, and very honest, will you take the names of those you feel let hearts down and the supporters down to your grave with you or do you want to call them out? No, because they, they, they know themselves. I know, I know what I did. And I know that 
I win games. I mean, I, I, I'm talking. I mean, I spoke about the game against Hibbsford. Gordon Hunter broke my my cheekbone and my jaw, uh, and, and and that's why people sometimes ah you you hold a grudge about this, and, and people say oh you hold a grudge about Big Craig. I hold a grudge about Big Craig at Dens Park. Absolutely. I played. I mean, the day that we played Hibs at Tyne Castle, we're winning one nothing. I get my jaw broken thirty five minutes into the game. At half time, the doctor says, you need to come off. I said, I didn't want to come off. Joe says, right, get a couple of tablets, give me paracetamols, you play the whole game, and then you get the arm around you. That's because of your feeling for the football club. And what you, you the, the desperation, it could have backfired. It did against Celtic in a cup semi-final. I played 60, 70 minutes, wasn't great. Uh, had been poorly, winning one nothing came off and we were defeated 2-1. So there's times that it works for you as part of a team and times it doesn't. But there are there have been times in, in my heart's career where I've in hindsight looked back and thought, you know, did you give or did that individual give off the best at that particular time? Or did they do as much as they could have to represent our football club in the best way possible? In the game against Falkirk, prime example. And no disrespect to Craig, if we if we parallel it Murray, recent times, and I'm saying about Robbie having poor results recently, the day that we were beat 5 nothing at Livingston, under Craig mm. Levine, that's when Craig should have left the football. Because their results shouldn't happen. Getting beat 6 nothing with Falkirk was a, was a sacking for Joe Jordan with the team that we had. But as was the 5 nothing defeat at Livingston under Craig Levine, that was when you knew, for me, I knew there was something wrong with another I'm going to combine the two things that you have just spoken about, Craig Levine and Dundee at Dens. Now, mm -hmm. Saturday 3rd of May 1986, I've already mm -hmm. spoken about how you felt about it. When you arrived at Tynecastle to get the bus up to Dens and Craig Levine wasn't there, what did you think and what did you then think subsequently when you found out why he wasn't there? I didn't think anything uh, when he was near the castle because normally when we were going to Dens or Canada, you lived Craig, in Fife. You pick up Craig and John Cahoon got picked up at the sure. the, the, at the, uh, the 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 bridge. So yes. there was no thoughts at that time, and then John got on the at the bridge and Craig didn't. So we wondered when it came it passed. It was passed through the team that uh, Craig wasn't going to make it. Uh, we should have been good enough and strong enough as a team to withstand the loss of Craig Levine in that day. We were it. And on the back of that, we had a cup final coming the following week. So things maybe didn't have to be said or whatever. My disappointment was that maybe Craig did speak to Alan McDonald on the Sandy Jard and say that he apologised that he just couldn't get there. I felt for a game of that magnitude that on the Monday or the Tuesday when we went back into training, and Craig was there, he maybe should have spoke to a few of the guys and just said, I'm sorry I didn't make it there at the weekend. Uh, but that never happened. That was the that was the disappointment aspect for me. Not mm. to, as much Craig not actually participating in the game. Was that the start of the two of you not exactly getting along? Because we don't get on with everyone in life. We have to work with people. We don't always get on with them. Was that the start, or was was it something before that that had happened that kind of kick-started this dislike between Gary McKay and Craig Levine? 
I don't know. I mean, it was never, it was never something that I kind of thought about because I, I felt within our changing room, the one thing that held us all together was was the relationship within the changing room because of the spirit we had and because of the amount of things that we'd done together as a group. That was a, the team spirit was massive at Tynecastle. Uh, so I never, you know, I mean, we were at the club a long time after that together, Craig and I. Uh, but he has openly acknowledged the fact that he finds my, the way that I live my life and so on a wee bit uh, different to the way he lives his life. And that's that's the way, as you're right, that we, we don't get on with everybody, you know, and, uh, mm. and we're battered on. You and I were at Alan Ray's testimonial dinner many, many years ago, mm-hmm. and we were we were we were well oiled. Mm-hmm. And something sticks in my mind. And I, I, given the fact that we were well oiled, I don't know if it can be clarified. But I think we were we were kind of we weren't drunk enough that we're going to forget it. Mm-hmm. I am pretty adamant mm-hmm. that you had said to the table, "I'm going to hold out an olive branch. I'm going to go over and try and shake his hand," and he refused that. What's your memory of that afternoon in the Gorgie uh, Suite? I must have been more drunk than you, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it's not that's not it's not something I remember. But it's not. I mean, at the end of the day, none of us are going to lose sleep about not being uh, close friends. I mean, you you do you're right within any walk of life, you develop relationships with different people. You have closer friendships with different people. I spoke about Kenny Black earlier. Uh, I mean, Still in contact with you know with David Bowman, Big Gordon Marshall, who played about. So and, and Craig will have his close uh, network of friends, John Cahoon being one of them. And, and that's just the way life is. Never mind sports. So uh, I don't think either of the two of us will lose any sleep about us not uh, sending Christmas cards to each other. <laughs> um, after Joe Jordan, um, there was Sandy Clark. There was the ill-fated Tommy McLean spell. Um, 1st of August 1995, uh, Jim Jeffries took over. Now, he was someone that you were actually playing alongside when you first came into the Hearts team as mm-hmm. a teenager. What was it like when, when Jim came in and, and what was he like as a manager compared to the others that you worked under? Well, Jim had tried to sign me just at the, at the time that Tommy McLean was in charge when Jim was at Falkirk. So I, I was looking forward to, to working under Jim. And I loved my time under Jim uh, and Billy Brown and Paul Hegarty because they were, when we're talking about the three guys that are involved at Hearts just now, you could probably make a parallel with these three guys because they were, mm-hmm. they were, they were guys that were steeped in football, you know, Jim and, and, and Billy and, uh, and Paul Hegarty. So it was a wonderful place to work, uh, wonderful people to work under. Uh, and what they did was bring in players that pushed the guys that had been there for a few years harder. You know, Paul Smith, who was a big heart supporter. Paul and I had been to cup semi-finals together and that years gone by as supporters. And Paul came in to put me under pressure in the position I was playing to, to such an extent that Paul then got in the team and it was up to me to, to, to push to get back in. And, and, and they built it slowly but surely. And again, when I spoke about Alan McDonald and Sandy Jordan, when you think of the Mike Galloways of this world that they brought in, guys of that ilk, the one thing that Billy Brown and Jim Jeffries had about was their identification of players, and they, they got one or two wrong, 
But when you think of the Neil McCanns and the Colin Cammons and the David Weirs mm-hmm. and the Zeus's, Pasquale and Bruno, by the way, they, they knew how to pick a football player. Or, and not just as players, but as people. Because Gilles, and then David Weir's up there as well, but Gilles Rusi is, without a shadow of a doubt, the nicest guy I have ever met. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can certainly imagine that. And I'm just thinking, though, I don't think Billy Brown had quite the the same smile as Lee McCulloch has. Um, but yeah, I get, I get the parallels. <laughs> I don't know if Billy smiled at all, but, but Billy had a. But there was a balance within the relationship, Laurie, that was it was crazy, and he actually, in hindsight, when you look back, he had a, Jim and Billy had a. Is it Tilla? Telepathy. The new, yep. the new, you could tell within the change room now, and I think back, they could tell what each other was thinking mm-hmm. and who was the right person to give that message and who was the, you know, and and the, the balance was just out of this world. And then what they found in Paul Hegarty was somebody who was committed to making sure we were a fit, fit team also uh, and having achieved what he had achieved as a player. You would never question Paul Hegarty's training or or work ethic, that's for sure. 1996-1997 would be your your last full season at Hearts. Um, You still played 37 times that season, 28 of them starts. Um, You said earlier, I mean, you were 33 um, by the point of finishing that season you said you'd kind of lost a bit of pace by that point or you were did you I never did, had you, pace Laurie I never um, had pace yeah sorry you did you did you feel that it was coming your time at Hearts was coming to an end I uh, I probably did subconsciously I hoped it wasn't but uh, I, I, I probably realised that things were changing you know and uh, and Jim and Billy were taking the the team a, a, a different, a, a, not a, a different route, but like a parallel route to what Alan McDonald and Sandy Jarman had. They were wanting to bring in their own players. They were wanting to uh, have guys that were going to respond to them who were fresh to playing for a club of, of heart standing. And, and, you know, I mean, Stevie Fulton had been at Celtic, hadn't played a lot of first team games, but yeah. It can't be missed, Laurie, when you think. See, when you've played, in a, and I look at Neil, when you've played for Dundee and you've played for Ray's Rovers, and Colin was successful at Ray's Rovers uh, as a, in winning a cup, uh, and you know, you, you play for St. Johnson. When you join Hearts, you cannot fail to be enthused because when you run out in front of the crowd that we run out at, or a parts run out in front of it, and I was fortunate to run out in front of it. That's massive. And it wasn't until I went to every that I realised just how massive. And it's the same for these guys. There's a pressure playing for Rangers and Celtic, but I have no doubt there's a pressure playing for Hartland and Lodium because we have a big home support, and we have a home support who demand the best from each and every one of the players that are wearing maroon. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you're delighted that the last time you played for Hearts, although your last competitive game was at Celtic, your last game that's recorded 
um, is a Craig Levine benefit match. So I'm sure you, you hold that <laughs> hold that dearly after what we've spoken about earlier. Um, well, did, Craig, did Craig Levine not get hurt in that one from a tackle from Gary Mackay? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, I mean it, it, it was always going to end. It's not nice when something like that ends within your, your, your playing career. But it was, you know, when... Seventeen years, though. I mean, you by that by the time you left, you'd spent mm-hmm. more of your life as a Hearts player than you'd spent more of your life not as a Hearts player. So that must have been tough. Yeah, well, when I when, when I look at it, and I was thinking today about figures before we came on, you know, and, I, and I, you think about having injuries, and you know, I mean, I, I look at uh, people like like Craig, like Stephen Frail, who were really impacted with injuries they had. I mean, I had a, a, a broken jaw and a, a fracture of my foot, but. Over 17 years to play, and I know that it was 737 games, but 515 league games, that works out about 30 a year. Over mm-hmm. 17 years, would that be right? Here's the numbers, Gary. 12 in 80-81, then 17, 34-31, 17-32-36, 41-29-33, 36-34-26, and they were all in the league. And that that's what kind of, looking back now, you see players move on when the 27 becomes 17, which becomes seven, and they're like, nah, not for me. You you started 28 times in the season, your last season at the football club. And, and I know we won the cup the following year. Mm-hmm. Is there any regret whatsoever that even if you were going to be a bit part player, that if you'd stayed around, and being in the squad like Robbo getting his medal, that you could have got yours, or did you have to leave when you had to leave? I, I think the conversation that Jim and I had, and it was only Jim and I, uh, I think Jim made it plain that change was happening. And, right. and, I, and I I didn't like him for that, but I respected him for that. And that's that's part and parcel of mm-hmm. life. You know, when somebody makes a judgment, I mean, the guys that made a judgment that I was good enough to get in the Hearts first team, I never have questioned them. So it wasn't my place to question uh, the guy that was now saying, you, you know, your time's up here. Uh, would I have, you know, would I have tried to hang on a wee bit longer if I hadn't been Alec McDonald that was at Airdrie? Probably not. And that wasn't to work out, but that's, uh, that's another story. But no, and, and what Jim achieved with the Hearts, I mean, Jim knows how much I respect him. And I was with Jim recently at, uh, at Drew Busby's uh, funeral. And, and Jim knows the respect I have for, for him and Billy about what they achieved for Hearts in 1998 and, and how respectful I was of being invited along to the Gordy Suite on the evening of the, the cup final, you know, to be part of the, the celebrations of winning a trophy for the first time in a long time. We're going to go on to after playing. We're going to make this a, a, a two-parter because um, there's, there's so much to get through. So I hope you don't mind because I, I love looking back at, at at your time with the football club and and it was a it was a pleasure to to kind of go through it in depth when we did the book. Now it's kind of it's an hour or so um, to talk about this. A couple of things I wanted to mention. One, the inch perfect through ball for Wayne Foster for the goal that none of us will ever forget in the derby to make it 21 in a row. And two, after you've spoken about that, talk to me about what you remember of the the meeting with Eamon Bannon prior to the Motherwell game mm. when mm. Uh, you found out that Gary Locke and you 
might not be playing in the game. Hibs first. Right. Well, being a, a six, being born in '64, going through the six, the late '60s and early and '70s were great from a Hearts perspective, and and were so going Easter Road was always bit. I always, for some reason, loved going Easter Road more than I even did beating Hibs at Tyne Castle. I still love going Easter Road and, and, and watching us winning. Uh, so. I was part of a team with Sandy when Sandy Clark and Ian Jardin scored the Easter Road. I set two of the goals up and we Rogo scored the third one and uh, we beat them 3 1. Uh, I scored later on in 1991, I think it was, where we beat them 4 1 and also scored for them that day. But it, it was wonderful because I was on the 1st of January 1992, I think, equal top goal scorer for Hibernian, which uh, was. Was massive, you know, as, a, as own goal. But the ball to Wayne Foster, we had got hammered that day. We were, I oh, right, that. right. Oh, my God. We had got hammered that day. We, Kevin McAllister had turned me inside out, upside down, because I was still playing wing back. Sandy Clark brought on Jim Weir, if I remember correctly, and he took Scott Leach off, and I then went on to the into midfield, and that's where the pass came from. Uh, from a Hibs perspective should they maybe have brought Fozzie down in hindsight yes but they probably were thinking the same as myself and my teammates oh Fozzie hit the back of the net or well he hit the fencer he hit the back of the net and it was a it was a wonderful wonderful finish and if I think if I've got a memory of a colleague doing anything within football Wayne Foster, who's a top block as well, being on that fence, having that moment. And I say to him, come to the Hibs games, come. He doesn't want to be remembered just for that. <laughs> I think, please, well, you make the pass and I'll score the goal then. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he wants to be remembered, you know, for, and I can, I can relate to it, but it's just one of these iconic moments and, and, and being in the Scottish Cup game because we hadn't, at that point in time, I had played in the Scottish Cup for a long time and we went on and had uh, a wonderful victory against them in a, a cup final. Uh, but uh, uh, that was a that was a fabulous day. Uh, a fabulous day for us, but a fabulous day for Wayne because it, he was an underrated football player and uh, mm. it, was a, uh, it was great for him. A lot of uh, pace. I, I just remember the key as well. The, the key, because it was live on BBC and Derek Johnson was on, on the studio and a Hearts fan had a big silver key and it was being waved around. A couple of friends of mine, Ian and Neil Hunter from Pennycook, were on the fence. That picture when Wayne turns around and it's a brilliant photo. It's just memorable. Um, so that's that. That is that. Motherwell. Eamon Bannon's chat. Were you nervous going in? How did it all come about? Well, we were, we were really struggling. And what had happened the week before at Easter Road was that Tommy McLean, I went up and gave Big George Stewart, who we spoke about earlier, uh, who had a pub with Jim, but George was a Hibs man. I gave him some tickets before we played Hibs in Easter Road the week before the Motherwell game. And when I gave George the tickets, he says, oh, what is, how are you looking for Saturday? I said, I'm disappointed myself, George, because I don't think I'll be playing. And it was just a off-the-cuff remark. So I got pulled in and no, I didn't. I waited till the Monday. That's what happened. Because uh, I, we were 
defeated the Easter Road on the Saturday, and about six, seven, eight minutes to go, I was asked to go on. And it was as close as I've ever came to refusing because we were never getting back in the game. And it was I, I felt that Tommy and Eamon and Tom Forsyth at that point in time were it was kind of embarrassing me throwing me on at that point. Nobody was injured. It was a substitution for a substitution state sake. So I left it, went on, and then on the Monday I went in and seen them and I said, I don't know what the, the issue was. I said, Ah, you were telling uh, George Stewart what the team was. I said, The last group that I'm ever going to tell what the team's going to be is, is Hibs. And I said, All I said was, I didn't think I would be playing, and I was proof correct in that. I said, But I'm telling you right now, if you don't play me this week, he's making a huge mistake. And if you don't play one or two others, you'll be making a huge mistake as well because. That game was massive at that point in time in, in mm-hmm. our history because we were, we, again, we're talking about defeat, we were in a downward spiral, a, a big downward spiral, and it had to be arrested against Mother we were for the, we were for the draw. Uh, and and they, did, they, they took it on board. But would they have taken, if I hadn't have went in, I think mm. I would have started in the Saturday, not convinced. The weird thing is, Gary, you look at the table, Hearts finished sixth, same points as Kelly, same points as Partick, Aberdeen were ninth, and they didn't end up going down, and it looks better than it was. So, yeah, I mean, it was a vital win. I thought Hearts played very well that day. Final question I've got before we get on to post your Hearts career. Um, here's a quote from you. My lifelong love affair with Heart of Midlothian and at times over-the-top passion for the club probably cost me a few things over the years as well as a few fallings out. My question, therefore, looking back, is there anything at all you would change? Uh, within a footballing sense, probably not. In a personal sense, yes, when I was younger, yes. I, I, think, I think that is... Uh, a part of maturing as an individual as you get older and realising that uh, the world doesn't just revolve around you. That brings us to the end of part one of our chat with former Hearts player Gary Mackay, who has been telling us about his time as a player at Tynecastle over that 17-year spell. We will continue our discussion, our interview with Gary Mackay on the second part of this episode, which will be available around 48 hours after the release of the first one. So keep an eye on our Twitter feed and, of course, the podcast apps, wherever you get your podcasts from. But until the next episode, thanks for tuning in.